We are finishing up our look at the Lord's Prayer. And so, uh, if you would, turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And I, I hope that as, that as we've gone through this, that this has been helpful for you, uh, helpful for your prayers, right? That was really the reason that, uh, that, that I wanted to do this study this summer. One, because my prayers need help. And so I figured, surely if my prayers need help, um, maybe at least some of your prayers need help as well. And so Jesus, what Jesus does is he tells us how to pray, right? And what we've seen is that this prayer is really broken into two halves. The first three things that we ask for deal with God and his great purposes, right? God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. And then the second half of the prayer deals with our needs. And so as we look at the last one in Matthew 6, verse 13, would you pray? Well, let's read. I'll read starting in verse 9, and then we'll pray. Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's God's word for God's people. Let's pray and ask him for his help with it. Father, would you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray through your word. Teach us now where we need your help. Teach us what these words mean, what they should mean for us. So that you would be glorified and so that we would be satisfied. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the second half of the Lord's Prayer deals with our needs. Now, um, I realize need can be a very subjective word. Uh, I, am, I am, as some of you are figuring out, a pretty inept handyman. Um, yeah, I just, just not good with hammers. So, uh, and we just bought a new house, and there's something about buying a, a house that like when you go to look at it and it's not your house, everything looks fine. Right? Everything's cosmetic. Right? Like, oh, yeah, we'll just paint some walls and it'll be all good. Right? But something about signing your name on the line, like as soon as the pen leaves the paper, like the walls fall in, the floor falls out, all the pipes burst, and like the fuses blow. Right? So that's kind of been our experience sort of with this house. And since I'm inept, I've had to recruit a number of you to come help me. And so uh, somebody asked, we were finishing up one project, and uh, this person asked, they said, all right, well, what else do you need? And I was like, like I'm starting to look around the house, like, well, how much time do you have? Uh, I've got a long list, right? Uh, and usually our prayers can kind of be like that too, right? That, that when we come to prayer, and actually it's one of the things that even wears us out in prayer, that prayer tends to become this grocery list thing where we're, we're, we're bringing all of these needs, all these things we think we need before the Lord and um, after a while, it becomes tedious to us. And so it's interesting to me that when Jesus teaches us to pray, and when he gets to this section on what we need, he only mentions three things, right? And we've already looked at two of them. First, he mentions, 
He says we should pray for provision, right? That God would provide what we need to survive daily. So that's what, when we saw daily bread, that's what that was, God's provision, okay? But then he also prays, also says one of our needs is to be pardoned, right? That we would, that God would forgive our debts, that we, he would continue to forgive our sins because we continue to sin. And so we have provision, we need provision, we need pardon, and then last, we need protection. All right? Those three Ps are not mine. I took them from somebody else, and I don't remember who. So just know that I'm not that clever. Right? We need pardon. Excuse me. We need provision. We need pardon. And we need protection. Now, protection. Right? When, usually when you hear Christians pray for protection, it usually involves traveling. Right? We want to get from point A to point B safely. It's not a bad thing to pray for. Or maybe it involves like surgery. If you go under for surgery, we're praying that all would go well, that the person who's in surgery would be protected. Again, not a bad thing to pray for. But notice the kind of protection that Jesus tells us to pray for. Right? We're actually to be, we need to be protected from evil. Protected from the evil inside of us. Right? Lead us not into temptation and protected from the evil outside of us. Deliver us from evil, or your translation may say from the evil one. It can go both ways. But here's what we're asking for in this prayer. We are asking God to protect us from the evil inside and the evil outside. Let's see what we mean by that. First, the evil inside, right? When we pray, lead us not into temptation... What we're realizing is that I can't trust myself. And you can't trust yourself, right? This is a prayer that says you don't trust yourself because given the right circumstances, you will fall. You will enter into temptation. And so first, this is a, this is a prayer that helps keep you honest, right? This is the opposite of what I call Disney theology. Disney theology is you have the power in yourself, believe be all, be all you can be, right? Um, Bible theology says you are far worse than you could ever imagine. And you need far more help than you ever dared to believe, right? That you need God's grace in order to even be, uh, to even come close to doing good. Now, in case that's an insult to you, right? Let me affirm you a little bit. You are capable of creating great beauty, you are capable of doing great good. But what the Bible says and what this prayer forces us to recognize is that even when I create great beauty and even when I do great good, I'm also capable and very willing to tear down others to improve myself. Right? tear down others so I can look better, to harm, even harm myself so that I can feel pleasure. And ignore God, or even worse, be angry at God and ungrateful with God. Right? So even though we are capable of, of a lot, uh, of a lot of good things, all of those good things, as the Bible says, are kind of wrapped up and suffused with our sin nature. Right? We have this flesh, is what the New Testament calls us, that actually makes us far worse than we could ever 
imagine. So then we all have a natural desire to cave to sin. And if given the choice between loving my neighbor or loving myself, I'll choose myself 95% of the time. And even when I do love my neighbor, I'll do it because it's probably beneficial or helpful or makes me look good, right? Uh, so that may be a very negative, that may, you may think that's a very negative view, but I think it's a very honest view, right? That's what the, that's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And it's not a battle that we're going to win this side of heaven. So as long as we live in the flesh, we will battle the flesh. And so we have to ask God to keep us out of temptation. But let's talk about that word, temptation. Um, flip over to the book of James. Uh, a little bit later on in the New Testament, to flip way right, it goes after Hebrews and before Peter's letters, James. Because if you've been around the Christian block, you may have heard James 1 before, right? James 1, 2 through 4. You use a capo as a bookmark. There we go. James 1, 2 through 4. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word trial is the same exact word Jesus uses for temptation. Okay? Same, it's translated English differently, but it's the same Greek word. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, same word, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James seems to be saying that trial and test, testing are a good thing. They develop something in us. God uses them to develop something in us that we need. Later on in verse 12, he's going to say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So actually, if we persevere in trial, we receive God's gracious reward of life. So how is it that Jesus can say, don't lead us into temptation, right? Tells us to pray not to go into temptation when, using that same word, trial and testing are a good thing. And maybe it's even a little bit more confusing. Um, when James says in 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, same word, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right, so there's a, there's a little bit of confusion. If testing is a good thing, but we're asking Jesus not to, not to lead us into temptation, what exactly is Jesus asking us to be? What are we asking for? What are we asking to avoid if, if we want testing? If testing is this, uh, as one pastor says, is testing is this furnace that burns away the impurities of soul, um, what are we asking for? If God tempts no one, then why is Jesus telling us to pray this way? Well, read James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? So for James, testing becomes tempting 
when we give in to our sinful desires. Let me give you an example. There's a book in the Old Testament. It's called Job. And it's about a man named Job. Okay? And Job is a godly man. Uh, he, he worships daily, right? He prays for his children daily. Job is also a wealthy man. So he has a lot of money and he has a large family. And everything about Job's life is great. And so Satan approaches God and says... God, the only reason that Job worships you, the only reason he loves you is because you've given him a good life. His life is charmed. If, you take, if I take that away, then Job will forsake you. You know what God says? Have at it. God allows Satan to test Job. And so here's what happens. All of Job's children, they're grown children, they live in other places, All of of Job's children are killed. All of his wealth is taken away. It's stolen, right? And so Job, at the end of the day, has no children and nothing left, right? And yet he does not forsake God. And so Satan comes back to God and he says, okay, the reason Job hasn't forsaken you yet is because you you wouldn't let me affect his health. But if I attack his body, surely Job will forsake you. And so God says, okay, I'll let you you take his health. And that's what Satan does, right? Job's body is covered in these sores, these boils that he has to to cut open. And he has to cover himself with ashes to mourn and to, to alleviate some of the pain, right? So imagine Job's condition. Not only... Not only does all he love, all the people that he loves are gone, all that he had is gone, and now even his health is afflicted. All right? Job's wife, seeing her husband in this condition, comes to him and she says, Haven't you had enough? Curse God and die. Right? So her view is clearly God has forsaken you. You're forgotten. You just need to go ahead and blaspheme his name and let him kill you. Do you know what Job says? Shall we accept good from the Lord and not also bad? Blessed be the name of the Lord. All right, so there's a lot that could be said there. This isn't a sermon on Job, but I use them as an illustration. Job's wife gave in to the temptation. Right? Job's wife threw in the towel when, when tested. She gave in to the sin that said, God is not good. He does not love his children. He wants to forsake them. And she, and she lost it, right? Job was tested and persevered. So there you have an illustration of the difference between temptation and testing. And understanding that distinction helps us know how to pray. Because really what this is is a prayer that we be protected from ourselves, right? Knowing that we are likely to cave. Knowing that, that when, right, my friend Derek puts it this way. When we have a desire, like, so let's consider whatever that, whatever that sinful desire is. And then there's opportunity. When desire and opportunity meet, nine times out of ten we're going to fall. Let me illustrate that with a, a fairly light example, okay? Um, 
Skittles and Starburst and chewing gum, peppermint, those hold no allure for me. All right? Those kind of sweet candies are not at the top of my list. Right? So if you were to put me in a room full of sweet candy and you were to say, I'm walking away, you eat as much as you want. It really wouldn't matter a whole lot to me. I might grab a stick of gum, right? Because what you've provided is the opportunity, but I have no desire. However, if you took me into a room full of cookies and dark chocolate and peanut butter, you have now created opportunity and walked away and told me I could have as much as I wanted. You have now created opportunity coupled with my desire. Put those two things together... And my self-control will wither like a flower in my backyard, right? You put, you put desire and opportunity together like that for me, and, and I'm toast, right? And so that's what, so what this prayer is. This is a prayer that God would keep desire and opportunity from meeting up. Or if he doesn't that we would have what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that when we are tempted, as is common to all of mankind, that God would provide the way of escape so that we can endure. So this is a prayer. The, the way this affects our prayers is, Lord, keep me out of those situations where I am bound to fall away from you, where I am bound to sin against you. I don't want desire and opportunity to meet. But, Lord, if for your good purposes, those two have to come together, if you're going to put me in that situation, if you're going to test me, God, by your grace, would you enable me to endure? Would you enable me to walk faithfully? That's what we're asking for because we don't trust ourselves. But then there's this second prayer, right? Back in Matthew 6. Not only do we pray, lead us not into temptation, but we're also asking God to deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Now, so this this may sound strange if you're not a Christian, but there's someone out to get you. Okay? What the Bible says is that we do, in fact, have an enemy. His name is Satan. And that name means adversary or accuser, right? The first time we see him is in Genesis 3. And what he does is he tempts Eve to doubt God's goodness and rebel against God, okay? And so after that point, we all have a tendency to listen to the serpent's lie, right? That's why Jesus will call him the tempter. It is why... He is called the deceiver. Peter, in 1 Peter 5.8, characterizes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus calls him a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So, think of a bully. He is strong. Even his words are dangerous. And he's subtle. And so his words can sound sweet, right? But they're also damaging at the same time. 
And just like any schoolyard bully, it seems like his only reason for living is to cause pain for others. We have an enemy. As Martin Luther puts it in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's who we are up against. And we are no match. As Luther goes on to say, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. So this prayer forces us to acknowledge that we have an enemy out there. He's real. And we're not able to beat him. We don't have the strength necessary to defeat our enemy. And so it's a prayer. This is a prayer that we would be rescued from our enemy, right? What we're praying for, what this means for your prayers is that we're asking that our enemy and all evil would be restrained. That Satan himself would be kept at bay and that his purposes would be frustrated. So what we're praying for is that the bully would meet his match. Because he, if it's up to you and me, and we have to face him, if we, were, if we were to come up against our enemy face to face, again, we would fail. And so we're praying that the bully would be kept away and that he would meet his match. So if you can't trust yourself and you don't trust your enemy, who do you trust? Again, Martin Luther, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord of hosts, of armies, His name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. There is only one who has the power to defeat your enemy and your sinful nature at the same time. And not only does he have the power to do that, but he has the love for you and desire to do that. In fact, Satan is already a defeated enemy. He met his match at Calvary. You see, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't meet Satan power for power, fist for fist. No, what Jesus did to defeat the accuser, right? What Satan does is he, not only does he tempt and deceive God's people into sinning, but then he takes your sin and he whispers it in your ear. And he parades it before your eyes and he says, you are unworthy. You are, you are shameful. No one wants you. We see him doing that in Zechariah, right? What Jesus does when he goes to the cross is he takes that same record of sin, that Satan, that your accuser would use against you, and he takes it on himself. He takes your record of sin and puts it on himself so that the accuser has nothing left. Your enemy has no weapons. The bully's hands are tied. And so though, 
though he might be able to afflict bodily harm, he cannot condemn any of God's children because of what Jesus has done. He has taken away the lion's teeth. But more than that, with, along with that, if you trust in what Jesus has done on the cross, you also have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus takes care of the enemy without, and then he gives you the Spirit to take care of the enemy within. So that as Titus says, you can say no to ungodliness and yes to Christ. So really what this prayer is, as we pray this, as we pray this prayer, what we're praying is the first stanza, stanza of Rock of Ages, another Another hymn where we sing this, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we come to the communion table, as we come to feast on you, may we be mindful of the grace that makes that possible. Would we be mindful of the fact that we, that we have an evil enemy? And that we have an evil sin nature. Actually, Lord, for most of us, you probably don't even have to remind us of that. We already feel it in ourselves. And when we come to the table, we come battered and weary. And maybe we even hear the accuser's voice saying, that table's not for you. That table's only for good people. It's only for holy people. Lord, would you remind us of this prayer? Would we even pray it now in our hearts that the evil one would be at bay, that he would get out of our heads, that we would not use this sacrament just as another religious observance or tool, but that we would see it for what it really is. Your grace pictured for us in the body and blood of Jesus. That as we taste bread and as we drink juice, we remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf that frees us from guilt. Holy Spirit, come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.